Um, I'm Bobby Smith. I'm going to be your teacher this morning. And uh, what we're going to cover is the Torah portion today, which is Yitro. Yitro is a, um, a, a very powerful Torah portion. So I hope that, um, that you'll be enriched by this. So let's begin as we should always begin with a prayer. Avinu Shabashimayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this sunny day that you've given us today on your Shabbat. Thank you for this place that you give us to worship, Father, and to come before you on your Shabbat to honor your Shabbat. Father, be with us this day as we study your word. May we be enriched by it. May we be touched by it. May we gain wisdom from it. Father, be with us in, in all that we do. Open our hearts and our minds, Father, that we may be touched in whatever way you want to touch us this morning. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. So, um, kind of not on the topic of, of Yitro, but on the topic of Valentine's, and I'm not going to do a teaching on this or anything, but it's interesting, um, you know, as, as Messianics, we really don't observe Valentine's Day or um, Halloween or, or a lot of the cultural holidays that we have here in the, in the United States, but Valentine's, there's actually a Jewish similar to Valentine's Day. It's, it's, called, it's, it's a Jewish love day. It's called uh, Hag Ha Ahava, which uh, actually happens during the month of Av. When we think of the month of Av, there's a lot of things that go on in the month of Av. One of the things we think about a lot is the ninth of Av and, and all the, the calamities that happen to the Jewish people on that particular day. But the 15th of Av, which will fall on August 4th, in the evening at sundown through August 5th at sundown is the, um, the, the holiday that the Jewish people would celebrate the day of love. So that's a great day to give flowers to your spouse and your significant other and, and celebrate the, uh, the love that you have with your family. Um, Jethro or Yitro means abundance. It's, um, it's Exodus chapter 18, 1 through 20, 23. And um, it is really titled, um, I don't know if you can read the, the slide on the left, but um, A Wondrous Wedding at Sinai. It's, it's a celebration or a remembrance of the Jewish people accepting their covenant with God and actually bonding the covenant. And it, it um, takes on symbolically a wedding between the Jewish people and God himself. So um, we're going to learn a, a good bit about that this morning. I, um, I like to use a variety of sources when I'm putting together a Torah portion and um, to avoid plagiarism and just to give credit where credit's due. These are a lot of the sources that, that I've used this morning in, in, our, in our study. Um, Walk Exodus by Jeffrey Feinberg and uh, Torah Clubs 1 and 5 and 2, actually 2, I don't have 2 pictured up there, and Tim Hegg's uh, commentary and also the Art Scroll Stone Humash. So, uh, a little bit of an introduction to the Torah portion. It's the 17th reading of the Torah. It's named Yitro, which is a literal Hebrew meaning behind the name of Jethro. It's translated or translated from Hebrew. Yitro is into English as Jethro. As with most all Torah portions, the verse 
the title of the verse comes from the first words of the um, verse of the Torah portion. And it said, Now Jethro, or Jethro, the priest of Median, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people. This Torah portion tells of the story of Jethro's visit to the camp of Israel. Then it relates the great uh, manifestation of God at the Mount Sinai. God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, and he invites the people, all the people, to enter into a special covenant with him. Um, in our scroll, it takes a little bit of different uh, slant when it starts off in, in our scroll when you're studying this Torah portion. It, 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 it wants to... Um, it, it wants to sort of go about, uh, go into the, chrono, chronologi the chronological order of the, of the Torah, and it kind of points out that this particular Torah portion is out of chronological order. Um, was, did, did Jethro arrive at the camp before or after the Torah was given? Well, what they say, what they, what they um, interpret is, is that the splitting of the Red Sea and the Amalek, Amalites, Amalites, Amalek, Amalekite attack, they influenced him to join Israel. Others say that it wasn't the splitting of the Red Sea, it was the giving of the Ten Commandments which draw him, drew him to, uh, to come to Israel. Abin Ezra, which is one of the rabbis, follows the opinion that Jethro came after the Torah was given. If so, then why did the Torah mention his arrival at this point rather than when it actually took place? Abin Ezra explains that the Torah wished to draw attention to the contrast between Jethro and Amalek. Jethro was an outsider whose counsel was of major benefit to Israel whereas Amalek was an outsider who, provoked an, who, who launched an unprovoked attack against Israel. So Tim Hegg, he, he, agrees, he agrees with the, with the Humash. As he says, um, our Torah portion, if read without thought, might appear out of order. 18.5 speaks of Jethro coming to the wilderness at the Mount of God, while 19.1 gives the indication that the camping at the Mount of God came later. In fact, the order of the narrative is not strictly chronological, and this is instructive. The order is given to highlight the differences between Amalek, the eternal enemy of Israel, and the Kenites, who befriended God's chosen people. Jethro, you see, was a Kenite. What is more, when Jethro comes, the elders, along with Aaron, come to offer sacrifices together and to eat a covenant meal. This is very symbolic. This is very important. What's this point? God extends his covenant blessings, as he promised, to those who bless Abraham's seed, but curses those who curse Abraham's seed. In other words, Moses, by arranging the events of the story in, this Torah, in the Torah portion, in the order that he does, emphasizes that the Abrahamic covenant is alive and well. It's being fulfilled by God's faithfulness to his own word. Um, Torah Club 5, FFOZ Torah Club 5, focuses on the reunion 
of Zipporah and her sons with Moses. Moses' wife, Zipporah, she vanishes from the story right after she performed the miraculous circumcision of one of her sons on the way to um, Egypt. After that, that was in Exodus 4, we don't hear about her again until today, until this Torah portion. Some speculated that Moses divorced Zipporah and later married the Cushite woman in Numbers 12. Other opinions identify Zipporah as the Cushite wife. The Torah is very reluctant to divulge any of Moses' personal affairs. It doesn't go into a lot of detail about Moses' personal life, as it doesn't about several of the um, characters in the Bible's personal life. But wherever it doesn't, Jewish tradition always tries to fill in the blanks. It is, um, it is what all these commentaries we study by Rashi and Rambam and, and um, all the different commentators that, uh, that have come, com, you know, um, all these books and commentaries that they've given on scripture, what they're doing is they're trying to fill in the blanks for us. Oh, sorry about that. This thing, if you touch it, it, it changes. There's this thing called the Makilta. Have you ever heard of the Makilta? It corresponds to the Hebrew word midah, um, transliterated as M-I-D-D-A-H. And that word means measure or rule. And it's used to denote a compilation or a, 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 um, a literary work that's put together to give scriptural interpretation. It's called exegesis, you know. Um, the Makilta Rashi explains from a Makilta that he cited in his commentary, cites that Moses sent his wife and sons to Midian for their own safety while he carried out his mission in Egypt. Regardless of why he sent her away, we know that he did, because there's a reunion that's going on here. What we learn from that is that she was not with him in Egypt while all the different things were going on with Pharaoh and Moshe. He also reunited with his two sons at this point, so his two sons were not with him either during that, during that period of time. FFOZ Torah Club 2, which is Shadows of Messiah, focuses on the, uh, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And the reason it does that is because that is what we call Pentecost. When you, when you as a Christian, as you're being... Um, if you were raised in the Christian church or if you were part of, of Christianity before you became Messianic and you weren't raised Jewish, you would have learned of Pentecost only from the time that Yeshua had given the um, Holy Spirit to them or God had given the Holy Spirit to the disciples in the temple on Pentecost. And you really wouldn't know what Pentecost was all about, you know. Um, we hear about the mighty tongues and the, the fire and all that, and it doesn't go back into the history of Pentecost, so most Christians don't even have a clue what Pentecost is all about. Christians think of it as only the day that the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. Well, the children of Israel arrived in, at Mount Sinai. In Scripture it says during the third month. 
The third month is the month of Sivan. So they arrived at Mount Sinai and were given the Torah on Pentecost. Just as Passover memorizes or memorializes the exodus from Egypt, Pentecost memorializes the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. For this reason, Pentecost is called the festival of Matan Torah, which is the giving of the Torah. That's what that is translated as. The Torah refers to it as the festival of weeks. We most commonly refer to it as Shavuot. This is a poem that um, Rabbi Feinberg had, which I think is pretty, uh, pretty cool, you know. See what you think. Yitro from Midian, Moshe's father-in-law, listened to the Exodus story in awe. This priest gave advice as a wise old paw. Delegate to judges. Stop being the law. Moshe climbed up high on Sinai's peak. The mountain quaked and the people did freak. Then down came God. He wanted to speak as the father-in-law of those who seek. So our Torah portion begins in, in chapter 18.1 and it begins like this. Now Yitro, the priest of Midian, of Midian, Midian it says, Moshe's father-in-law heard all that God had done for Moshe and for Israel, his people. How Adonai had brought Israel out of Egypt after Moshe had sent away his wife Zipporah and her two sons. Yitro's, Moshe's father-in-law, had taken them back. The name of the one son was Gershom, which means a foreigner there. For Moshe had said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, which means my God helps, because the God of my father helped me by rescuing me from Pharaoh's sword. Yitro's father-in-law brought Moshe's son and wife back to him in the desert where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moshe, I, your father-in-law, Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and your sons. Moshe went out to meet his father-in-law, prostrated himself, and kissed him. Then after inquiring of each other's welfare, they entered the tent. Moshe told his father-in-law all that Adonai had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships they had suffered while traveling, and how Adonai had rescued them. Yitro rejoiced over all the good that Adonai had done for Israel, by rescuing them from the Egyptians. And Yitro said, Blessed be Adonai, who has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, who has rescued the people from the harsh hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, he says, that Adonai is greater than all gods, because he has rescued those who were treated so arrogantly. So, Moshe had witnessed to Yitro. And Yitro had accepted what Moshe was giving him. He accepted God. Yitro was a Gentile. Yitro was not Jewish. So here in the Torah, we have at the base of Mount Sinai, right before the Torah was given to the people of Israel, a Gentile that has accepted God. Isn't that something? Yitro rejoiced over all this good news. When Moses and the children of Israel went out of Egypt, Egypt, news of the event reached Moshe's family in Midian. 
His father-in-law Jethro set out to meet them. The power of this testimony is telling in how God changed Yitro's life. How have you given testimony to others? When I first became a messianic, I was like a fire hose. I would tell people about all this stuff that I was discovering being messianic, and I was pushing them away. I was being arrogant. I was being um, like I knew it all. I was angry in a lot of ways when I would give my testimony. It was not effective at all. As you mature, you learn, you know. Um, the Ruach gives you wisdom and gives you patience. You can see when you're pushing people away if you pay attention. You have to witness with love and patience. The Holy Spirit gives you the gift of what you call kokma, which is wisdom, and bina, which is understanding, and dayat, which is knowledge. And you get that from studying God's Torah and the living of God's Torah. Because when you live God's Torah, it becomes a part of you. And now, when you give testimony, it's real. It's part of who you are. You're also a lot more discerning as to when it's appropriate and effective to present God's word. One of the biggest mistakes we make as Messianic believers, especially new Messianic believers, is turning on that fire hose like I did. When trying to give testimony and overwhelming someone with your new knowledge, you're not really, you're not really being effective. People are all in different places, and it's up to us to utilize our gifts given by the Ruach and our skills, which are honed by living out God's Word and God's Torah, to discern the proper time and place to present God's Word to those whom we are given the opportunity and the responsibility. If you are in the Spirit and discerning, you will know. You will definitely know. Jethro was a man of many names. He was called by seven names in, in, in the Torah. He was called Ruel, Jether, Jethro or Yitro, Habab, Iber, Kini, Putel. Exodus 2.18 calls him Reul. Exodus 4.18 calls him Jether. Some say he changed his name from Jether, which is Yeter, to Jethro, which is Yitro, when he renounced idolatry and converted to monotheism and the belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He added the letter Vav, one of the letters from the name of God, to his name. So the name Ruel means friend of God. Isn't that appropriate? Jethro's declaration reveals the greater purpose behind the redemption from Egypt, establishing God's name and reputation in the world. That is the purpose of the Jewish people. That is the purpose that we as messianics are to carry on. When you join yourself to the nation of Israel, you take on that responsibility. Jethro renounced his allegiance to other gods 
and sealed his allegiance to the Lord with a sacrifice of burnt offering and a peace offering, something that had not yet been ordained by the Torah, because the Torah had not yet been given. He was, this was happening before the Torah was given. But he knew that he was supposed to do that. I'm touching this thing and moving these slides. I'm sorry. It's important to understand that Yitro never became Jewish. He was an early example of what we call a God-fearing Gentile. He was an alien living among the people of Israel. Paul, Rabbi Shaul, may have noticed that Jethro, the first bona fide convert to the faith of Israel, was not circumcised. Remember Paul always said that you don't have to be circumcised. He did not advocate becoming a proselyte, converting to Judaism. He advocated believing in the one true God and, and establishing yourself to the nation of Israel and to God through his Messiah, Yeshua. Moses, Aaron, and the tribal leaders, they all ate with Yitro. We hear that in this week's Torah portion. Remember, Peter would not eat with other Gentiles, which is what Paul had to um, basically, what's the word I want to use? Correct him, you know? Maybe that's kind of a, a nice word of what he did. Call him out. There you go. That's good. I like that. Yeah. But right here in the Torah portion, we see that Moses and Aaron had no tr trouble eating with Yitro. It's one of those things that uh, fences are built around so many different things, and sometimes fences are, are meant to be broken, broken down. To Paul, this text must have spoken directly to one of the dividing issues of first century Jewish and Gentile believers. So you know a Torah portion, as I've told you so many times, is broken down into seven portions. And the reader, readers will come up in the synagogue and they'll read all seven, seven portions. Um, the, um, the first portion was, was uh, the first division of the Parsha today was uh, what we just read, and that, that's the uh, Rishon portion, or the, what we just, just went over. The second portion begins in um, um, Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. And that's, this is the way it begins. The following day, the following day, Moshe sat to settle disputes for the people, while the people stood around Moshe from morning till evening. When Moshe's father-in-law saw all that he was doing to the people, he said, What is this you are doing to the people? Why do you sit there alone with all the people standing around you from morning till evening? Moshe answered his father-in-law, It's because the people come to me seeking God's guidance. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me. I judge between one person and another and explain to them God's laws and teachings. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing isn't good. You will certainly wear yourself out, and not only yourself, but these people here with you as well. It's too much for you. You can't do it alone by yourself. The Torah is a wonderful instruction on, in, in life. 
it, it's a great example, what we just heard, of practical teaching. He's teaching, he's teaching Moshe the art of delegation, delegating stuff. Leaders, great leaders, can't do everything themselves. You're limited. You're a human. Great leaders are leaders of people. Moving mountains cannot be done by one person, you know. So Jethro, this Gentile, is given Moshe, God's greatest prophet, advice as a father-in-law who is older and wiser. And it's interesting that um, as we go on further in the Torah portion, who Jethro recommends for Moshe to pick as ones that he's going to delegate to, their qualifications. We hear the term, the seat of Moses. What we're getting here is, what is the seat of Moses? The seat of Moses is what he was doing. He was judging amongst the people. So he is basically the supreme court in this, in this, uh, in this scenario. It goes on to say, this is the recommendation that um, Yitro had for Moshe. I'm, uh, I'm in verse 20. Um, I'm going to start on verse 19. So listen now to what I have to say, Yitro said. I will give you some advice, and God will be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases to God. You should also teach them the laws and the teachings and show them how to live their lives and, the work and what work they should do. But you should choose from among all the people competent men, men who are God-fearing, honest, and incorruptible to be their leaders, in charge of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And then he goes on to describe how they were to settle these disputes. And they were to, to settle the the um, everyday disputes, but anything that's too hard for them should come to Moshe. The Torah did not tell a story of the appointment of judges prior to the giving of the Torah through Moses. Mo future future generations, oh, let, me, let, me, let me back up on this, sorry about this, because this is very important. If the Torah did not tell the instructions or the appointment of judges prior to the giving of the Torah through Moses, future generations might reject the interpretations of the sages. Even though the sages fill in the blanks, so to speak, when we talk about the uh, commentaries, they're given that authority by God himself. People might read the Torah of Moses and decide for themselves how to interpret it. God in, in, instead put authoritative people in charge of that, beginning with Moshe. Those who shun, shun Judaism based on rabbinic, which you quote rabbinic, and traditions of man should note that God delegated his authority to mere mortal, mortals to interpret the Torah. Of course, traditions that contradict the commands of God must be disregarded, definitely. But most traditions that are developed out by the sages are developed out of an effort to keep the commandments and not to contradict them. Our master, Yeshua, 
he alluded to this story about Moses sitting all day judging the people. And I do have a slide on the seat of Moses. He, told, he referred to the Sanhedrin as the seat of Moses. Yeshua told his disciples, and this is in Matthew 23, 2 through 3, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe. Jethro advised Moshe in this strategy over the multitudes, the, the fifties, the tens, the hundreds, the thousands. He saw that it was too much for one man. He advised Moshe to appoint judges under him who could help carry out the load of leadership. He also gave them, him qualities of the man that he should pick. Think of some examples of delegation of authority. Why is this not important just for Moshe, but us today? If you've ever been a leader of anything, it's one of the most difficult things to do when you're good at something to give it to someone else. But if you're a leader, you have to delegate or you won't be an effective leader. And you have to also recognize who the right people are to delegate to. Very important that, that this is the lesson, one of the lessons that the Torah is giving us today. It doesn't matter what it is. A civic group, a congregation, a business, whatever it is, whatever type of organization, to be effectively run, you must learn the art of delegate, delegating authority. The obvious message of this chapter revolves around the issue of leadership. Moshe, in attempting to do God's bidding in leading the people, was actually doing a bad thing. For unwittingly, he was depriving the people of entering into a mitzvot, the mitzvot of serving. Leadership could not be given out willy-nilly. It was on the basis of personal integrity and demonstrated wisdom that leaders were chosen. As I've mentioned, the list of qualifications are men who fear God, men of truth, and men who hate dishonest gain. Compare these to the list of qualifications Paul gave Timothy for leadership. And those were humility, spiritual strength, and personal integrity. Very similar. These qualities cannot be tested over a short period of time. This is why we should be patient in choosing leaders, and especially patient in choosing leaders over our congregation. Leaders should come from our community from people who have proved themselves and their abilities over time. People who have grown in their faith and demonstrated it through their actions over time and not just in their words. Do as I say, but not as I do. The qualities necessary for leaders are seen in the way that they personally live out their lives how they believe, and how they teach. And this can only be, be discerned in knowing them in the context of life. What do you do when you leave here every week? One of the fundamental qualities of the Jewish community is that one's teacher is part of one's life. Hence the commandment in the Shema to teach our children by keeping God's Torah on our hearts. So, in um, 
Exodus 19.1, we learn of the, uh, the giving of the Torah. hope I didn't miss anything. I probably did. But you only have an hour, you know. All right. In the third month, after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt, the same day they came to the Sinai, De Sinai Desert. After setting out from Rephidim and arriving at the Sinai Desert, they set up camp in the desert, there in front of the mountain, mountains. Israel set up camp, 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 can't talk. Not the mountains, the mountain, which is Mount Sinai. Moshe went up to God, and Adonai called to him from the mountains. Here is what you are to say to the household of Yaakov, to tell the people of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will pay careful attention to what I say and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of Kohanim, a kingdom of priests for me, a nation set apart. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. It's the third month. In the third month after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt, the same day they came to Sinai, after setting out from Rephidim, they set camp in the desert there in front of the mountain. Chapter 9 begins with a reference of time, or chapter 19 begins with a reference of time. In the third month, the, on the new moon, Rosh Kadesh, Shavon, Savan, or maybe it's, maybe it's Sivan, since it's got the I in there. The climax of the Exodus is now at hand. God has answered Moses' early doubt about the worthiness of Israel to be redeemed by telling him, hey, they would prove themselves through their readiness to serve God at this mountain in Exodus 3.12. That's where it all started. The burning bush was at this mountain. They're, they're, they've, they've come full circle. I've lost my place on these slides, but I'm going to go to that one right there. That'll work. The nation knew that its moment of fulfillment would be at Sinai. Indeed, it would become a nation after it arrived there. Rabbi Hirsch notes that earlier encampments were marked with grievances against Moses and against God. But here at Sinai, there was not a breath of complaint. The nation knew that it had arrived at its destiny. The Jewish people showed its worthiness by receiving the, the Torah they, they showed they're worthy to receive the Torah by coming to Sinai in total unity, like a single person with a single heart. After a journey of nearly 50 days in the wilderness, the people finally arrived at Mount Sinai. When the Torah says Israel camped in front of the mountain, it uses the singular verb form camped. The sages derived from this that the people were in unity, and they encamped as if they were one man. The book of Acts alludes to the interpretation and the introduction of the Pentecost story. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all of one accord and in one place, it says in Acts 2.1. The Lord made an offer, offer of betrothal to Israel at Mount Sinai. The people of Israel were like a young girl 
He was the suitor asking for her hand in marriage. He offered to be their God if they would be his people. In Exodus 6-7, the, children of Is the Lord told the children of Israel, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. In the comments on that passage, we notice that this phrase was an adaptation of an expression from the sphere of marriage. The ancient Near Eastern wedding formulation was you will be my wife and I will be your husband. God was not content to simply redeem these people from slavery. He wanted them as his very own people and to enjoy an intimate relationship with them. This is covenantal language. God wanted to enter into a covenant with Israel. A covenant is a contractual arrangement that specifies terms and conditions. The marriage metaphor is a good way for us to understand a covenant. When I'm teaching um, classes and when this, we get to, a, you know, when you're talking about covenants, that's one of the only things that we today have that, uh, I mean, you have contracts and stuff like that that are like agreements and stuff, but marriage is the one thing that gives us understanding of what covenant really means. It is a covenant. God wanted them to be a kingdom of Kohanim, a kingdom of priests. The Lord promised to make the children of Israel into this kingdom of priests. The job of a priest is to serve as an intermediary between God and human beings. His people are to act as intermediaries. When we serve God, keeping his commandments and worshiping him as befitting, we represent humanity. When we interact with the rest of humanity, we represent God. People who do not know the Lord can look at believers and their behavior and learn what it's like to be God, or at least learn what God is like is probably a better description. That's the thing about his Torah. That's the thing about his, his instructions to us. They are giving us his, his character. They're giving us his character. When you, when you live out the Torah, you are living out the character of your creator. Israel has this privilege. They have the privilege of being God's special people. But they also have this responsibility to show and tell to the rest of the world who God really is. They are to be the perpetual witness and testimony to the one true God. Tim, Tim Hag has a, com, um, a comment on the mixed multitude, because you know there's a mixed multitude in this crowd that's standing before that mountain. We know that as far as faith is concerned, a mixed multitude stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. Some came from the faith of Abraham, a faith in the promised Messiah, while others clearly did not. Yet when Moshe announces the covenant words of Adonai, they all respond. The mixed multitude and every one of the children of Israel respond. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Always until Messiah returns, there remains a mixture of belief and unbelief, of the righteous and the unrighteous, of those who believe in truth and those who confess with their mouth but lack genuine faith. And so it was at Sinai, proven by the fact that God warned repeatedly that the people and priests were not to break through to see his glory, lest he break through to destroy them. He gave them clear instructions not to approach that mountain while he was down on that mountain, giving them, them, 
giving them instructions because he knew what would happen to them. We need an intermentary. Doesn't covenant faith result in fellowship? Why these harsh warnings to keep the covenant people separate for their, from their covenant God? Because not all Israel is Israel. Not all who have a physical standing in the community have a spiritual reality in faith. And God separates on the basis of his Messiah. He is the dividing mark, the touchstone of all righteousness. He is the one. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him, as it says in John 3:36. Though the community was to purify itself in a ceremonial way, as indicated by the abstaining from sexual relations and all the instructions that he gave them, only the Lord sees the heart. As long as people remain sinners, they must approach God through his chosen representative, Yeshua the Messiah. There is no other possible way. Um, what do we have here? There's, there's the um, Tetragrammaton, the father's name. As I said, it's a, um, it's a wedding at Sinai that we're witnessing this day. Before a traditional Jewish wedding, it is customary for the bride and groom to immerse themselves in a baptism. It is a purity ritual. He, it's a mikvah, you know. It's, it's what, uh, what he told them to do in this three days that they are to prepare for him to come and speak with them. Both the bride and the groom want to be ritually fit and pure on their wedding night. In Hebrew, a gathering of water suitable for a ritual immersion is called, like I said, a mikvah. A mikvah may be a river, it's got to be running water, a mikvah, a lake, or any natural fed pool of water. In the Torah, the ritual of baptizing oneself in a mikvah is sometimes referred to as washing one's garments. Like a bride preparing for her wedding day, the people of Israel immersed themselves before meeting with God at Mount Sinai. The people underwent ritual purification for two days to prepare, the appearance, to prepare for the appearance of God. The people needed to be in a state of ritual purity in order to stand in the presence of God and hear his voice. Exodus 19.12, let's read that. You are to set limits for the people all around and say, Be careful not to go up on the mountain or even touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand is to touch him, for he, is, he must be stoned or shot by arrows. Neither animal nor human will be allowed to live. When the shofar sounds, they may, they may go up on the mountain. As God prepared to descend from Mount Sinai, he was concerned about the safety of the people. He warned them twice not to come close to the mountain. The concern was a matter of holiness. God is dangerous in, in much the same way as lightning is dangerous. It is awe-inspiring and beautiful, but if you get too close to it, it is deadly. In the biblical world, there is an understood axiom that no man can see God and live. His presence can be lethal. Mortal flesh cannot endure the manifest glory of the living God. 
The holiness of God is not well understood in today's world. Our modern assessment of God is usually doesn't depict him as dangerous or unapproachable. Only when we understand how unapproachable God is can we truly understand the value of being able to approach him in the name of Yeshua. I keep going back to, sorry about that. The Lord told Moses that he was about to descend upon Sinai to speak to the people. This created a dangerous situation for everyone. No man can see me and live. Mortal flesh cannot endure this manifest glory of the living God. Why are these harsh warnings? I already said this, I think. Um, in fact, I did do that. Let's, let's look at the under the chuppah, the wedding, wedding ceremony. In a traditional Jewish wedding, the bride and groom are married beneath a canopy called a chuppah, which we do for our children here during children's time. The chuppah symbolizes the new house being formed by the union of the bride and the groom. Was there a chuppah at Mount Sinai? Ariel Berkowitz suggests that the cloud of glory over the mountain can be compared to a chuppah. A similar image appears in the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah says that in the Messianic age, God will spread a canopy of cloud over Jerusalem. There is a, um, a contract, a beautiful thing, that is signed at Jewish weddings by both the bride and the groom, and the bride and the groom's family, and it's called a ketubah. Whenever my youngest son got married, um, the uh, family is, is very religious. They're not messianic, but uh, the um, one thing that they wanted to bring into the wedding in honor of Kathy and myself was a ketubah. So they actually brought the, a ketubah to the wedding, and we both families signed it. It was the most beautiful thing. It's a marriage contract, and it's read aloud to the bride and the groom as part of this covenant ceremony. It's a written contract. It spells out the terms and conditions incumbent upon a man and a woman, and after the ceremony, these witnesses all sign the ketubah. It's displayed in the home as evidence that the marriage is legal and permanent. In the wedding on Mount Sinai, the Torah was the ketubah. It's a legally binding covenant contract between God and his bride, Israel. From the top of Mount Sinai that day, God spoke the Ten Commandments to all Israel. This can be compared to the reading of the ketubah. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, now, I've skipped a lot of the scripture and just re reading the highlights. But the, then God said all these words. So, when you watch the, I don't know how many of y'all have seen this, but when I was growing up, the big movie, The Ten Commandments by Charlton Heston and I uh, forget the director of that, Cecil DeMille, yeah, there you go. When, 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 you, when you see how the Ten Commandments were given in that movie, they're given to Mo Moses up on Mount Sinai, and it's just him and God, and God's, you know, putting the, the, his little finger flame on the, the stones and writing the Ten Commandments on the, on the two stone tablets or whatever, you know. So it just shows you how a movie can... Uh, can sort of mess up what really happened. God did not give the Ten Commandments just to Moses. 
He gave them to all the people. They all heard it from Mount Sinai, and it says so right here in the scripture today, right here in, the, in, in Yitro. God said all these words to the people of Israel. So, prior to his self-disclosure at Mount Sinai, God had only revealed himself to a few individuals. Abraham, you know, Moshe, Aaron, Isaiah, all the different prophets that he had. To Noah, you know, when he built the ark. He only had revealed himself one-on-one -on -one to a few different people. But here, one day, God stepped down from heaven on the top of a mountain, wrapped in wind and fire and lightning and smoke and a dark cloud, and his voice spoke in an exceedingly loud, loud sound as described as a shofar. And he said, within hearing of the whole nation, to every man, woman, and child, Anoki Adonai Elohecha, I am the Lord your God. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the abode of slavery. The revelation at Sinai marked a critical change in faith and religion forever. No longer could a man say, whatever you believe is true for you. Baseless speculation perished. No longer could a person say, I think God is like this. Or I think God is like that. Theology left the darkness of speculation and superstition and became the study of revelation. At Mount Sinai, God told us who he is. And that telling is in his Torah. The Torah is his message to us. His self-disclosure. Before the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, we had little hope of knowing who God is. What he's like, what he's about, and what he wanted. Bible readers may object and say, surely Adam and Eve and Noah and the patriarchs and all those good golden men of the book of Genesis knew God before the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. But then we are forgetting. How is it that we've heard of Adam and Eve and Noah and the patriarchs? We know their stories only because those stories are in his Torah. The book of Genesis contains divine revelation only because of what happened at Mount Sinai. The Almighty did not address the revelation at Sinai to a single individual. A whole nation heard this God speaking. Estimates are somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five million people. Two to five million people, I think, may be the more accurate thing or estimate. Most major religions in the world can trace their faith back to the spiritual experience of a single individual. Premises of the theology, faith, and creed can build from subjective and dubious experiences of a single person. Not so with our Torah. An entire nation received the Torah. All the people of Israel heard the voice and saw the fire. The writer of the book of Hebrews vividly describes the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in Hebrews 12. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind cloaked the mountain. The voice of God spoke in a shofar blast that left the people begging Moses to speak to God on their behalf, lest they die. The writer of the book of Hebrews goes on to compare the revelation at Mount Sinai with the revelation of the Messianic era. He compares Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, 
If the fearsome revelation from on earth from Mount Sinai demanded obedience, how much more so does the even more awesome revelation from heaven demand it? At Sinai, only Israel witnessed the revelations of, Lord's, of the Lord's glory. In the Messianic era, the whole world will, will witness the majesty of the Holy One, the majesty of the Holy One. Blessed be He. All right, so I'm down to about five minutes. Um, the Ten Commandments are just 10 of 613 commandments in the Torah. But they have special significance. When God revealed himself to us, he did not give us a systematic theology of creeds, recipes, or diagrams. He gave us a legal code consisting of covenant terms and obligations. He gave us laws, and each law brings a fresh revelation to his person. He did not give the laws of the Torah to tidy up human society. Each commandment communicates a piece of divine revelation, a piece of godliness. More than just rules for governing human behavior, the laws of the Torah reflect the lawgiver. They are a mirror of who gave us those laws. Isn't he an awesome God? Each law and commandment, no matter how small or seemingly irrelevant, communicates a piece of revelation of God. It's an overflowing of his heart. The Ten Commandments are moral absolutes. I think I actually got a commandment there. That's it. They are moral absolutes. They were spoken aloud by God and everyone heard them. They require no further justification. They are non-negotiable. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the commandments, the first four commandments refer to our obligations toward God, and the last six refer to our obligations to our fellow man. The Ten Commandments continue to speak across the centuries. The voice from Sinai echoes even today in the lives of millions of people, and not just in Judaism, not just in Messianic Judaism, Christianity as well. They do a great job of keeping the commandments, except for number four. Obviously, there are a lot more commandments in the Torah than just those ten. As I said, there are 613. The Ten Commandments are like an ethical core from which the rest of the commandments radiate. In some ways, they summarize the rest of the commandments. In other ways, they form the foundation for the rest of the commandments. It is not as if these commandments are the only important commandments and all the rest are optional. The Ten Commandments were never meant to be regarded as a shorter, easier version of the Torah. Neither are they an indication in the Bible that the Ten Commandments endure while the rest of the laws are somehow done away with. There's this thing um, in Middle Eastern culture called Suzerian. I hope I said that right. A Suzerian is a nation or a political, political entity that controls a nation's international affairs but allow it to retain sovereignty over man of its internal affairs. Some aspects of an ancient Near Eastern Suzerian treaties are useful for understanding the Torah 
and the covenant relationship between God and Israel. In, ancient, in the ancient Near East, suzerainty covenant, covenants were written out and deposited in a safe place. The two tablets are duplicated copies of the treaty. Just as a modern contract is always written in duplicate, so that each party can retain a copy, the Ten Commandments were written on two tablets. We always think of the Ten Commandments as being five on one, five on another. It was basically a duplicate, ten and ten, you know. It was a contract, signifying a contract. Each party retained a copy. God retained one, they retained one. The Ten Commandments were, were um, they should be understood as a legal core for the entire covenant of the Torah, not a sum of it. So I was going to cover a number of the Ten Commandments, but I'm just going to cover one. The Fourth Commandment is the commandment of the Sabbath day. Believers who still keep the Sabbath day are called Sabbatarians. Different sects of Sabbatarians have existed through most of Christian history, but in the days of the apostles, all believers were Sabbatarian. There was no other day to worship. The Lord commands Israel to remember the Sabbath. What does it mean to remember the Sabbath? Was there ever a danger of forgetting the Sabbath? In Semitic culture, the word remember has clear covenant connotations. To remember means to act in faithfulness to a covenant. Similarly, God remembered Noah and the ark. He remembered Sarah when, she, when he was ready for her to open her womb. Therefore, God is telling Israel to show faithfulness to his covenant by keeping the Sabbath. The Lord commands us to keep the Sabbath as a holy day. Holy means separate, separate for the Lord. In Jewish tradition, the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of delight. There is still the formal clothing and sitting through long synagogue services, but the atmosphere of the day is one of celebration and joy. Festive meals, special guests, surprise visits to friends' houses, and eager delight in the word of God combine to make the Sabbath a time of special happiness. It is a day of song and good cheer. In order to truly enter the spirit of Sabbath, a person has to work the other six days of the week. In Israel, Sunday morning is like any other work day. Rush hour in Israel starts on Sunday morning. This does not mean that we have to go to our job six days a week. The word work in this particular parsha or portion is called melakah, which is broader than simply to make a living. It means any kind of creative activity or production. Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, a person might suppose that it does not matter which day of the week he, he set aside for the Lord. And it is okay to set other days of the week aside for the Lord other than the Sabbath. It's just don't miss the Sabbath, right? There's only one Sabbath. And the Jewish people know when it is. And that's why we follow the Jewish people. How unlikely it is that its entire nation could simultaneously lose track of the Sabbath. The Jewish people understand very well which day is the Sabbath. We know which day it is, and that's why we come here on this day. Melakah means production and creation. The original work from which God rested on the Sabbath was instituted because that was the creation of shaping, uh, creating, forming, making, and ordering, structuring, organizing, mixing, and molding things into what we have today as this world. When God rested on the Sabbath day, 
He was resting from imposing his will upon substances. He rested from producing. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in our soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Our soul belongs to God. Sabbath is a sanctuary in time. Just as there are holy places in the world that we might regard as sanctuaries in space, the Sabbath is our holy day, and it creates a sanctuary in time. The Sabbath is a day for enjoying holiness and blessing. On the Sabbath, we are relieved from the burdens of secular work, and we spend extra time to pray and study and to absorb ourselves into God. In ancient times, since ancient times, the Torah has been read in the synagogue every Shabbat. The gospel tells us that it was Yeshua's custom to attend synagogue and read from the Torah every Sabbath. And so that's why we're here. All right, well, thank you all very much. Um, you're going to be uh, having me again next week. Hopefully I don't bore you too much. We're going to do Mishpatim next week. So uh, let's close with a, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this glorious day. Thank you for this wonderful Torah portion that you've given us today. This is so awesome, Father, to be able to, to speak about your Ten Commandments and, and your wonderful inclusion of the Gentiles into your, into your family, my Father. Father, be with us all as we go through this service today, as we go through our, um, our weeks when we leave here. May everyone that we come in contact with see God in us in all that we do. In Yeshua's mighty, precious name I pray. Amen.